Today's reading is Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. It can be found on page 964 of the Bibles next to your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and then squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he, <clears throat> he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me. Our Lord and our Father, our God of grace, we come into this place from different emotional spaces and different worlds. We come young, we come old, we come full of faith, we come full of doubt, we come maybe filled with tears and others of us come with happiness and some of us come right in the middle, sort of in a dull, uh, nondescript kind of a place. And the truth is, whatever our situation, whatever our mood, our story and our emotions, we're all more of a mess than we care to admit And yet, the story that amazes us and that wows our hearts is the story that 
Through Jesus, we are more loved and accepted than we ever imagined. Will you settle our hearts with the combination of those two things, knowing that we're more of a mess, but also believing that we're more loved and accepted through Jesus? And with that, with that kind of grace and that presence, may your Holy Spirit help us to listen in such a way that our lives might be changed this morning. May we hear your voice, and may we know that we have met you through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. How are the kids turning out? That's the question of the week. How are the kids turning out? And the answers that you guys gave, I think, are really touching and bring us into the, um, you know, the weightiness of the topic today of thinking about parenting. How are the kids turning out? They are alive, so that's what one person said. How are the kids turning out? Someone said they're more concerned about including others than any other generation but not concerned for truth. Someone else says, career-wise, great. Character, good. Daughters are good to me, but no connection or relationship with God. You hear the realness in some of these. Um, Someone says, I see kids helping each other, and I think they're turning out well. Then I watch them eat random candy off the ground, and I go back to worrying. And someone says, and you can tell this is a parent of children, says, we shall see, riding the waves with as much love and patience as we can. What's going on in the realm of parenting? You don't have to be a parent of children. This isn't just, oh, this is the family sermon, and so if I'm not married or I don't have kids, this isn't for me. This will touch on all family relationships today. Maybe thinking about your own, the parenting that you grew up with from your parents. A couple of years ago, this post went viral on Facebook called How to Be a Mom in 2017. Make sure your children's academic, emotional, psychological, mental, spiritual, physical, nutritional, and social needs are met. While being careful not to overstimulate, understimulate, improperly medicate, helicopter, or neglect them in a screen-free, processed foods-free, GMO-free, negative energy-free, plastic-free, body-positive, socially conscious, egalitarian, but also authoritative, nurturing, but fostering of independence, gentle, but not overly permissive, pesticide-free, two-story, multilingual home, preferably in a cul-de-sac with the backyard and 1.5 siblings spaced at least two years apart for proper development. <laughs> also, don't forget the coconut oil. <laughs> and then added to the post was this, how to be a mom in literally every generation before ours. Feed them sometimes. Is something happening with our parenting today, with our concept of parenting, the different kinds of parenting that are out there because there's there's different things that we talk about. It might be helicopter parenting. It might be another phrase someone talked about is bulldozer parenting. (laughs) And then there's uh, being a tiger mom. There's that philosophy. 
There's parenting that is, uh, when you have a newborn, there's the baby-wise parenting, and then there's the attachment parenting, which camp are you in? There's the decisions of parenting, like there, so that you might end up in the homeschool parenting camp, or the public school parenting camp, or the private school parenting camp. And then this quote that you might have seen in the worship guide where David Zoll says, like religious doctrine, we, we seldom adopt a parenting method casually. Schools of parenting inspire denomination-like loyalty in which communities of like-minded parents function as de facto churches. Yet the tighter we hold to our set of rules, the worse we feel when we fail to uphold them. What kind of parent are you is shorthand for what kind of person. And so you sense there's some, de- some depth to these issues. And that same author also says that what parents often do, whether you're thinking about your parents or whether you're thinking about yourself as a parent, is that parents get wrapped up in cycles of enoughness. You know, maybe every time the child meets an obstacle or faces a challenge, it becomes something of our enoughness as a parent, or our parents' enoughness gets kind of wrapped in as we try to problem-solve the issues of our kids. So some of us had parents who were putting their hefty load of their enoughness on our shoulders, and we're still dealing with that. We're still maybe mad about that, or we're frustrated at that, or teasing that out. And some of us are doing the same thing with our own kids. You know, where, what kind of hopes does one have for their child? What does that look like? What is their, sort of their standard of enoughness? Is the standard that they become a lawyer, that they'll be able to open up a case and expose the weaknesses and the flaws in the prosecution's case? Or is it a surgeon, that they'd be able to open up a human body and and expose the problem and bring health and restoration and renewal to someone who's sick? Or is it that they would get a certification as an auto mechanic and be able to open up the hood, the hood of your, you know, 68 Camaro, you know, your midlife crisis car, and, uh, and explain to you why it's making that smell or that noise and then be able to fix it for you. We have hopes, we have expectations, and there is a certain level sometimes in par- with parents of enoughness. And what is that level? And then once you have some kind of level like that, it tends to be that you begin to think, and a parent begins to think that unless the child, if the child's not going to get there, then um, it's maybe somehow the parent's fault. There becomes a sense in which no good future is possible for the child unless it's engineered by the parent. And it's interesting to think about this when in the context of a, of a church that in a little bit we're going to have a chance to say a prayer together and in the words that we'll pray we'll tap into, if nothing else, the key metaphor of that prayer will be the parenting one where we'll say, I believe in God the Father. And then we'll continue that metaphor when we say, well, I believe in God the Son, His, His, only, His only Son, our Lord. Jesus. And think about that. If I don't think that 
when we're brought into that metaphor of father and son, I, don't, I think that we're smart enough to know we're not being taught something about the gender of God as if that's something to be communicated or even possible. But for whatever reason, as father and son are chosen instead of mother and daughter, what we're taught instead is something about, and what we're entering into is something about a kind of relationship, a kind of parental love that is worth putting into the very way we talk about God and the way we pray to God. A kind of love, a love that um, David Zoll, in that book that some of you are reading along with the sermon series, he talks about our, the love of God with us in being sort of a parental love is a non-contingent, compassionate alliance. Let me say that again. He makes an alliance with us, but it's non-contingent and compassionate. A non-contingent, compassionate alliance. And because, so if you're a Christian and you believe this, and this is a part of your worldview and your way of living, so having God the Father and Jesus his Son a part of something that you've, a parenting relationship you've been drawn into, and you are now a child of God, this is supposed to make a very big difference in how you look at the world around you and look at the relationships with your parents and your children. You're walking around saying, I have this father who loves and cares and watches out for my journey. I have this father lovingly holding my journey. And so when you look at, you say, I look at my parents, and I also say, you know, they have, there is a father who holds their journey and who is their loving father watching over them, and they've been drawn into that parenting love. And I, and I look at my children and I say, my kids have this parenting Love that is watching over them. And there's something in which, once that is established, it relieves me of the ultimate burden of engineering the futures of my family relationships. Theoretically. It relieves me of the burden of having to engineer the future of my family members. And so we enter into a story in scripture that I've never really thought of, actually, as a parenting story. Um, it's, a, it's a story that can speak in many different ways in the way we look at it today very briefly. It's a story of, called the prodigal son parable. We look at it today just in terms of saying, wait, if we know the father of this parable, because this is how God is with us, this is how our spiritual parent is, we are being spiritually parented, then how does that flow into and make, start to make, give us imagination for differences in how we might lovingly deal with our own parents and our own children? And what we see is that we are parented by God. Um, we're given two different pictures of that. One of them is being parented by God as, really as thankless runaways. So we get to put ourselves into the, that placeholder, like, in many ways with God, I am a thankless runaway. And then the second image is to put ourselves into that place of, I'm a self-righteous do-gooder. And so there's, you know, God kind of handles us in two different ways if we believe what this parable is telling us. So look at, let's look at the first one. Our, our spiritual parent, if you're looking at the younger brother who wants to run away, our spiritual parent lets us run away. And in some ways, sets us free, releases. 
The parable itself doesn't go in great depth. It's pretty abrupt. It's shocking in its abruptness. Because he says, Father, give me my share of the estate. And then the very next sentence is, so he divided his property between them. The first statement, give me my estate, give me my portion, is an, ins- an insult. It's saying, whatever is going on here is not enough for me. It's not satisfying enough. There's something farther on. There, there's not enough fun to explore here. I need to go beyond this isn't going to be enough for me right here. It's almost a challenge of enoughness. God, what you, you have for me isn't enough here. It isn't good enough. So that, and it's an insult in the culture of saying, you're as good as dead to me. You know, the, the only good you are to me is when you're dead, when I get you the inheritance. So let's just speed this up and let's end the father-son relationship. I'll take what I want now, not how it will accrue in the future. I'll just take now and get out, because you're nothing to me. So it's quite an insult, yeah? And, and yet, the parable doesn't stop and let us ponder that. It just says, so he divided his property between them. So there's a rather abrupt and quick, and in a sense, easy letting go that this father represents. Now, you've, in your life, you've been a younger brother. You've thumbed your nose at God. You have a track record, really, of thumbing your nose at God, and um, you can think of the ways in which you've said to God in a certain part of your life, man, right now the fun is over there. You're too restricting for me. This isn't good for me. This isn't good enough for me. I need to go over there. I don't want your restrictions. I don't want your whatever. And you've had, we've all thumbed our nose at God. And I think that's part of what we have to understand as we read this, is that we've actually been dealt with by God God can handle our thumbing our nose at him. In fact, the whole narrative of the Bible starts with when it comes to our action, it starts and the drama really gets going when the first us, Adam and Eve, thumb their nose at God and say, well, I need that fruit over there beyond the kind of the boundary line. I need to get over there where you're not wanting me to go. And God allows them to go there. And the, quite frankly, the truth is, for a lot of people, the only way to ever actually find God is to start running away from him. And you've experienced that, you've seen that, maybe you or maybe others. But the father in the parable, as it's showing us God's heart, he divides, the son leaves, and what is happening there, what perhaps might the father be putting his hope in or his trust in? Well, I think it comes out in verse 17 and 18 when the son, you know, the money runs out, he's spent, squandered it all on uh, fun living, and the money runs out, and there's a drought, an economic downturn happens, and he's helping a farmer clean up after the, and feed the pigs. And what happens when he hits the bottom? It says he came to his senses. And what really, what really did he tap into at that moment? Notice. How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? But here I am, starving to death. And then he decides to go back. I find it marvelous and incredible to note that, that he remembers the abundance of his father's kingdom. Initially, he ran away because it wasn't enough. But his coming to his senses is around that issue of 
No, it actually is exactly what I need. In fact, it's abundant. He couldn't see it before. Now, somehow, he can see it. And it seems to me that God sets such a baseline of generosity and abundance that he trusts his own abundance to bring his children back to him. And so that's why it can seem like sometimes you say, God, why are you letting, you know, and maybe a family member, you say, why are you letting them go down that road? Why are they going? To, and maybe you take matters into your own hands. You're like, no, I'm going to stop them from going down that road. Perhaps God's abundance is what God is trusting as he lets people free to go down those roads. We see it. You see it maybe in your kids turning down a certain road. And there's roads that our kids or our parents or family members go down that are dangerous. They really are. They just really are not good. And we see it. Today we stop and we remember that they have a heavenly father who sees, they have a heavenly parent who sees the danger. And then we begin to wonder what baseline and what track record have you set in your relationships with your families? Because perhaps what is better than fretting and trying to stop and halt a process that may need to happen, perhaps the best thing that we can do is be like the father in the story, the parent. Perhaps the best thing we can do is consistently lay a track record of abundance, of our love, and of goodness for those in our family that might draw them back eventually that might engender them back to us eventually. So that's the first thing to note. Our spiritual parent lets us run away. Our spiritual patient also um, deals with our self-righteousness. We get self-righteous and God tolerates us out of love. There is an elder brother syndrome that we also have. We have our younger brother things where we're hurting other people and family members and so forth. We hurt people with our disobedience. The elder brother is punishing and oppressing his family members with his obedience. And that's two different kinds of people you might think of in your own family, right? <laughs> now it gets personal. You think like, oh yeah, oppressing us with their obedience. The elder brother is kind of like a, a goody two-shoes. The elder brother goes down the path of resentment because I've made the right choices, but what's left for me, they're having all the fun. And so we want everyone to be just like me, and we want everyone to go through all the proper hoops and dot all their I's and cross all their T's. The elder brother problem. Well, the story is, just to keep it really short, the story for the elder brother is much the same as the younger brother. The father, the spiritual parent, has patience and has time to go out and plead with the elder brother. And so it goes like this. Um, the older brother becomes angry, refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. 
Isn't it funny how both brothers have an enoughness complaint? The first one's off because even all this abundance of this kingdom isn't enough. Then the second one's, you know, sees the younger one is getting too much. And he, now he doesn't have enough. That's just, we're always like that with God. We're always saying, God, it's not enough. Not enough, not enough. But when, so the father, but he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And the father, who's always, already we've been told, he pleads with him to come into the party and join the joy. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found. Now the father's problem with the elder son is that the elder son is not being a true member of the family, is not understanding the, the abundant love of the family. And now the, at the end of the parable, the older goody two-shoes is outside of the family in, in really a similar way that the younger one was outside of the family squandering his wealth on prostitutes. Two different ways of being outside the family, the irreligious one and the religious one. And God has forgiveness and grace for both, for all. God has forgiveness and grace for the thrill-seekers and for the do-gooders, for the class clown and for the teacher's pet. Patience and love. He's pleading with him. And the father prefers that this elder son would share in his joy. So often we're not connected to God's joy. We're living joyless lives, but maybe we're saying, I'm one of God's people, and yet okay, well, where's the joy? So there's a way in which the father is coming out and noticing you're not in with the celebration. The elder son is not in the family celebrating the joy. And yet what the father has is he can love the older brother through the older brother's self-absorption. And so the father's patient enough to love the runaway son and patient enough to tolerate the self-absorption of the elder brother behavior. That's how God is with us as a parent. So really the summary is this, uh, from um, another author, two authors actually wrote a book, uh, Elise Fitzpatrick and Jessica Thompson. And this is what they write about God and about us as parents in this world. At the deepest level of what we do as parents, and I would say also as family members, we should hear the heartbeat of a loving, grace-giving parent who freely adopts rebels and transforms them into sons and daughters. We should, I love that, at the deepest level of what we do as family members, we should hear the heartbeat of a loving, grace-giving parent. That's what we're doing today as we listen to the prodigal son story. And then we begin to wonder what kind of magical moments will begin to pop up in lives of parenting and family because at a deeper level we're in touch with our spiritual parents' love for us. We have allowed our spiritual parent, God the Father, to relieve us of our enoughness journey.
Let me just read a couple of examples of what might happen. In her memoir, Cherry, Mary Carr recounts uh, this instance when she was 14 years old while her parents were out of the house. A miserable Mary tried to do herself in by swallowing a handful of pills. She was unsuccessful and wound up sick. When her mother and father returned home, they tenderly nursed her without suspecting the suicide attempt. They attributed the vomiting to food poisoning. After a while, her father asked her if there was any food she could stomach. All she thought she could eat would be a plum. But plums were out of season, and so she went to bed. The next morning, her father came into her room with a bushel of plums, having driven through the night from Texas to Arkansas to get them from her. Mary remembers, but it's when you sink your teeth into the plum that you make a promise. The skin is still warm from riding in the sun in daddy's truck, and the nectar runs down your chin, and you snap out of it, or are snapped out of it. Never again will you lay a hand against yourself, not so long as there are plums to eat, and somebody, anybody, who gives enough of a damn to haul them to you. That's how you acquire the resolution for survival that the coming years are about to demand. You don't earn it. It's given. And in that blinding instance, the justifying story of Mary's life switched tracks. Her performance revealed to be at best beside the point. At worst, a liability when it came to what really mattered. And what mattered was the magnitude of uncoerced generosity so towering and inconceivable in proportion to the not-enoughness that had clouded her vision. And then this story written by an author named Chad Bird, he says, he, he tells this tale of his childhood. I found your book, my mom said. We were sitting on the living room couch after school. What book is that? I was in eighth grade. Puberty had not yet introduced itself into my life, but that certainly wasn't a hindrance to my mesmerizing fascination with the glossy images of unclad flesh that winked at me from the pages of Playboy. This was in the early 1980s, long before the internet and smartphones, where porn was but a, is but a click away. My friend's dad subscribed to the magazine, and when no one was looking, I pilfered a back issue during a sleepover at his house. Stuck in my boot... Snuck it into my house, stared wide-eyed at the pages, and now I sank shamelessly into the couch as my mom looked at me and revealed, revealed that while she was cleaning my room, she had discovered my book. What's a parent to do when you've caught your child in flagrant wrongdoing, when he's violated the rules of the house, when he's acting immorally, how do you address it? Do you say, oh, well, boys will be boys and laugh it off as juvenile curiosity? Or do you lay down the law, chastise him, and punish him with lawn mowing, leaf raking, and dishwashing for several weeks? What is the appropriate response? I don't know that there is a one-size-fits-all answer to this, but I do know that my, what my mom did, and the fact that I can still remember today, 34 years later, with gratitude and humility, says a lot. The conversation was relatively brief. She wanted to know where I'd obtained it, the magazine, and how long I'd had it. She informed me that she'd disposed of the material, and she wanted to be clear that this would not happen again. 
It didn't. By this time, my cheeks were flushed, tears were building up in my eyes, and a dark shame was soaking into my soul. It was sad enough that my mom knew I'd been looking at pornography, or it was bad enough, but that she was actually looking me in the eye and talking about it with me was too much. And then she said three words that I'll never forget. You are forgiven. Not you are forgiven if. Not you are forgiven but. Simply the unparalleled trinity of liberating words. You are forgiven. Full stop. Seeing my evident anguish, having said more than enough to express her disapproval and realizing that my shame was already a self-inflicted punishment, she spoke not so much as a mother, but as a fellow child of God. At that moment, she was my sister in Christ, a fellow beggar who tells another beggar where bread is to be found. The bread of absolution, the food of forgiveness. At a deeper level, at the deepest level of what we do as family members, we should hear the heartbeat of a loving, grace-giving parent who freely adopts rebels and transforms them into loving sons and daughters. Let's pray. Our God of grace, may we hear that grace and may it resonate deeply with our souls. Only you, by your Holy Spirit, can make it do so. And so we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.